Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a still rather deserted city of Westminster in these times of COVID-19, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Mark Brocklehurst. Mark is the Managing Director of Sharples Group Limited, a company based in Warrington, Cheshire, which specialises in supplying office solutions. Mark, welcome to the program and it's great to have you on the air with us on this fine day thank you for joining us you're welcome scott i'm uh, looking forward to it likewise mark now the purpose of uh, this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership so if we just take that word leader first and foremost and look at that in isolation what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate um leader leadership um i, I guess it's the it's the ability to develop and nurture your teams um, so that uh, you can go on a journey together. Um, and, and I guess probably more importantly that um, you, you can you can chart a, a, a new and exciting, challenging path ahead as a, as a collaboration. So I guess the leader is, is, is the person or person that would um, allow that to happen um, so that it's in, in harmony rather than all, all different forces pulling, pulling against each other. Um, so I guess in essence, it's that ability to work with your teams and, and bring the teams on that journey with you. Sure. And um, if we think about um, your leadership style for a moment, Mark, in the context of Sharples Group, how would you describe that? Um, I think it's it's certainly developed over over the years. Um, I think it's much more adaptive leadership now. Um, I, I suspect probably the early days of lots of um, uh, changes in different styles uh, and probably a bit of a laissez-faire uh, um, style going back a few years ago, which was which great for people that that um, allows to flourish. Uh, but some people that need closer um, management, close closer um, working um, in, in together, then, then then that's probably not the best. But I think it's much more adaptive nowadays. It's it's trying to it's not being the same person for everybody. It's actually trying to to help everybody in different ways. So yeah, adaptive style. Mm, exactly and um, adaptive styles uh, within people management especially are hugely important because as you rightfully say there no one particular leadership approach is necessarily going to work for every single personality is it so being flexible being adaptable that's all part and parcel of being a leader in that respect for sure uh, yeah and, and 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 that changes over you know just as you change and change your styles etc I, I guess the people that uh, that you're working with uh, can change as well we've, we've got um you know, we've got a very, very strong um, staff retention here. So the average uh, per person at Sharples has worked here for in excess of 13 years. That's a long, long time. Um, and people can can kind of move in and out of ruts, etc., and need constant motivation and, and, and challenges, different challenges that they have personally. So you have to adapt uh, with those at different times. So I guess it, you, you, you put, we're in many different hats and you are you, you don't always get it right, that's for sure. But clearly making sure that, um, you know, not soft touch that's absolutely not 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 the style but it's it but it's also about encouraging rather than you know a lot more carrot than stick that's for sure 
Exactly right. Um, it's all about just encouraging people to have the confidence and empowering them to take on their own form of leadership, go beyond their comfort zones and be able to uh, develop her really, in a sense, I guess. Um, of course, you mentioned um, there's a very, very strong um, retention um, at Sharples. Of course, you've been there yourself since the uh, the late 80s, Mark, I think I'm right in saying. But um, prior to that, of course, uh, you did have a career in the, uh, the Royal Navy. Um, are there any examples of maybe leadership techniques that you've been able to transfer directly over into the, uh, the business world? And has that been quite an easy transition um yeah so so right from i guess probably my fifth leadership course in the royal navy was 1982 so that's quite a while back um and that 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 was that was a tough i guess going back then um so so you're 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 in the same level as other people next minute you you're promoted to a level where you've got leadership responsibilities and and i guess that was very very challenging because you know one day you're you're kind of the same and the next day you're meant to be taking those people on that journey with you that that was very very tough uh transferring that over to um into the business world so straight away when i came into the business world i'd done 12 years in the navy um, and my first job was in management, um, and, and of course, different um, a different way uh, of actually um, managing people, a different way of actually taking them on um, need, needed to be adapted because obviously military, um, it, you know, I wouldn't say you, you say one thing and people do it in the military, but <clears throat> there's, there's certainly um, those, there's bits of it that are transferable. There's other bits that you have to adapt into a civilian lifestyle. I mean, it, it's a long, long time ago now, and clearly over the years it, 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 it's been it's, it's a work in progress always. But yeah, there's lots of stuff. I mean, the the grow technique came from I think the Royal Navy initially, so that's <clears throat> looking at cultures, etc., and getting the best out of people. So constant looking at stuff like that is important. And interestingly, given the, that sort of shift in uh, career, Mark, I'm interested to understand um, what some of the big influences um, and inspirations um, have been on you as you've developed through your career um, as well. Is it mainly stemming from experience, do you think, or are there any individuals that really stick out in that respect? Well, a lot of inspiration uh, from lots of individuals. I read, I'm, I'm an avid audio book uh, listeners, so, so whether they are... Um, People like Scott, people like Shackleton, uh, going back, those are the Navy connections, I guess. Plenty of military ones, um, bags of endurance athletes and sports people that I look at. Uh, and then business people. I'm a um, big, big fan of um, Seven Habits by Stephen Colvie. So I try and look at stuff, implementing that into my um, lifestyle, not just business life, um, but also my personal. <clears throat> and um, Simon Sinek, so I'm currently reading that one. Um, and and so, so I think always looking to try and sharpen the saw, always looking to try and Im- improve my own leadership techniques um, and work on it. Because sometimes, like I said, you've you've got to you've got to use different tools in your chest to make sure that you get the best from different people. So yeah, always looking to learn. Exactly right. It's it's a constant process of development, isn't it, um, I guess, uh, Mark? Because even when we're in leadership positions, we're never the finished article. It's a constant process of learning and developing, isn't it? Because we're not necessarily, we may be born, I suppose, with a certain um, innate qualities, which give us a certain presence or a certain aptitude for leadership in a way. But it's about constant development, honing your skills. And without that, we can't really hope to become effective leaders, can we? Uh, absolutely. There's there's no way that um, certainly I'm not. I wasn't a born leader. I, I don't think for one minute I would put myself in that. And, and I'm certainly not an entrepreneur. <clears throat> but I, but I 
I'm constantly always working uh, with other people to try and see, you know, what what is the future, where where, where is the, the kind of um, course of direction, um, and what 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 method should we do to get there. Um, and 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 I, I do think that it is, you know, some people probably are born leaders, I, I guess. Um, but but for me, it's working on it all the time. It's it's looking at certain mistakes that you've made and and and. and you know, not reloading the gun and shooting yourself in the foot a second time. Hopefully, kind of doing something slightly different um, until until it until it works and, and constantly trying to reshape it so that you get a better result each time. So yeah, it, it's 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 the whole. I think the whole life is a work in progress, isn't it? And, and and you'll never get to that point. If you get to that point, uh, hallelujah. But but I think it'll probably be. Um, it's it's a lifelong journey for me. That's for sure. And I would say the same um, as the, probably the case for most people, uh, Mark. And we talked about um, sort of inspirations uh, very briefly and named some of the figures, of course, that have had a profound influence on yourself. But in the context of the here and now, have you been particularly inspired by those around you staff wise? And, and the reason I say that is because during these times of COVID-19, where everybody's having to adapt to remote working or perhaps having to continue to go on site and operate safely, people have been really get mucking in, going above and beyond just to keep things ticking over and have really pushed the boundaries. And I'm imagining that it's been the same uh, for yourselves at Sharples Group as you've had to adapt to uh, sort of meet this uh, pandemic as well. Yeah, the um, so we've got probably about two thirds of the team currently on furlough, um, and a third of the people operating the business um, and doing jobs that they didn't um, hitherto get involved in. That includes the directors, that's myself. So I'm, I'm doing risk assessments and stuff now. Um, and, and you're kind of learning new trades and without exception everybody that's in is just doing a wonderful job they're all um, keen they all, they all see the big goal that we're, we're trying to aim for that which is we get out of this and we don't have any casualties um, from the furlough team or any, any of the, the team for that matter um, so every single one of them am um, I surprised probably not am I pleased that the way that people have performed absolutely they've been they've been fantastic um, and that also means that the people that are on furlough possibly got the toughest job they're, they're the guys who've got to sit at home and kind of we, we've got to feed them information make sure the communication channels is good so even people that aren't actually in work are still doing a great job running quizzes making sure that their colleagues are, are okay that the well-being is good so that there's lots of communication we're not letting anybody to go down a hole that they can't get back out of um, and I guess as we get to this point now we're starting to think about the restart and how that looks um and so that, again, brings lots of different challenges because people have been sat at home for quite a while. You've got people that are going to be coming back. So it is an ever-moving feast, and we've got to make sure that we're adapting all the time to, 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 to the, the new challenges. But, uh, yeah, so I've got a fab team. Uh, we've had a fab team for a long time. We keep working on it. It's kind of our number one job here. It's looking after our people so that they can look after our customers, and, and that's where we put all our efforts in. I think it's it's Richard Bronson that, that pushed that one out first, but it's definitely uh, our mantra as well. And I think that's absolutely uh, fantastic. And uh, keeping the communication channels open has been hugely important during this time, just to keep everybody clued in and just to provide also that much needed reassurance. And we talked about, of course, 
a constant learning process being the case um, for yourself as a leader, Mark. And I guess even though this has been a very difficult and a very tragic time for many people, there will be some positives to take from this in that there's been real experience of crisis management come from this. People have really developed in going out of their comfort zone and it will ultimately breed resilience going forward from here as well. Yeah, we like I said, we, we've learned new skills. Um, every, every day is brought a new challenge. Um, you know, there's, there's no, there's not been any comfort uh, or, 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 or routine formed apart from obviously kind of this new norm that everyone's talking about. But it's, but we're always looking one step ahead. So what, trying to predict what the government's um, going to going to tell us next? What's the the next release? stage etc um, whilst managing the little bits of business that we're actually doing um, so it, it, it is looking at um, what's around the corner making sure that we can look at COVID secure when everybody gets back making sure that actually people feel like they're wanted back you know that's going to be a tough challenge we've been mm. probably at home for a number of months and, and we've got to we've got to bring them back in so that they're motivated they're inspired um and, and they know where the, the journey is because um reading a lot and listening a lot at the moment about you know what does a restart look like um and and and, and I don't think it's a rebuild. I think it's a reinvent. We've got this fantastic opportunity that you kind of only normally get after a war um, where, where you can look at processes, you can improve processes that have got, that have just kind of evolved. Um, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to working with the team to make sure that we, we refocus on what a, what, a, what a new Sharples group will look like um, in, in three months, in six months, in 12 months. And, and I think at each stage, it will be slightly different. Um, but it is a massive challenge, but it's, it's a really exciting one because, you know, the business is 40-odd years old. I've been here for 30-odd. Um, you, you develop some bad habits, and some of them are, are, are tough to change because people like, you know, this is the way we always used to do it. Well, we've got this opportunity now to upset the apple cart and say, okay, all the daft rules go out the window. Okay, what's what's the silly rules? Which ones can we bid and which, what, what can we do better? So I think it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity. Like I said, rarely do you get this opportunity to, to be able to do this. Uh, and with, with, a, with a, a re-engaged team coming back in, that actually are all looking forward to, 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 to a a brighter future then i think that we can we can achieve that together and what do you envision for that brighter future uh, mark as we do move through this uh, pandemic over hopefully the uh, the next 12 to 18 months and really get through to the other side and look forward to the long term yeah so we're gonna we're gonna have to diversify we we probably won't hit the levels of business that we were um enjoying uh, prior to this uh, pandemic we're in an industry that is in reasonably slow decline but it is a declining market so we we need to look for, we need to diversify we need to we need to give a better service to our customers wherever we can improve that um and we need to look what else you know we we've, we've got a loyal customer base as well that we've had for for, for many many years um but we've got to make sure that actually what we're, we're providing our customers is relevant it's up to date it's it's innovative um and and the services that that are that our, our, our guys offer are um are, are actually appropriate uh, for people so so there's lots of different stuff that we we've been thinking about doing for for a couple of years or maybe even longer we've got this opportunity now to invest some time we've, we'll have more time to be able to do that so we can actually uh, skill up um, and, and, and take this take this to our our customers um, and hopefully that you know enjoy the journey with these guys.
And it seems like it's going to be incredibly um, exciting times because, as you rightfully say, there are going to be opportunities out there even as we move through this uh, tragic time. And I think, Mark, given how informative it's been today, it would be fantastic uh, from a listener's point of view to actually catch up at some point in the next year to just see how the business is getting on and also discuss some of those new initiatives that you'll be involved in at that point in time for sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, hold me to account. That's that's for sure. We we all need the challenge, and we all need the accountability. But yeah, I, do, I genuinely believe it's going to be an exciting, um, certainly the next uh, twelve months and, and, and beyond um, as we build up and we we reinvent ourselves. So yeah, I love that. Thank you. Yeah, let's certainly hope it's going to be a positive retrospective uh, look at this uh, discussion today. As for uh, today's uh, programme, Mark, um, it's been a real pleasure having you um, on the air with us. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to join. And um, do, most importantly, take care and stay safe in the meantime with everything still going on as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Mark Brocklehurst, Managing Director of Sharples Group Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, and holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside 
the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well in scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.